Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis. And as usual, I am so excited to be sitting down with a guest who has reached out and wants to be able to share with our community their wisdom, their story, and in fact, their work and project that has come out of their experience of loss. Ashley Jones, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's always such an honor to sit down. And I said to you just a second ago, off mic, when guests are coming on to share their personal story and and then sort of what has come of that personal story with the gift that they give back from the traumatic growth of the loss, mm-hmm. it's always really an honor. It feels really sacred to me. So I just want to take a moment to say that to you. Thank you for Thank being you. here and thanks for being willing to do that. So the first question I always ask is what brings you into the world of grief and loss? Man, that is a great question. And I'll, I would, I would answer that with the loss of my daughter, but I suffered loss before that. And as a kid, I lost my grandpa, two grandpas. I lost a friend in high school in a traumatic car accident. Um, It was pretty horrific. And then I lost my aunt to cancer when I was in college. And then I lost my dog. And as an only child, I, I got my dog when I was five for Christmas and she made it till I was 21. Wow. So she was like my sister. And, and so, so I have lots of loss and in different ways through death. And then I also have my parents divorced, we moved a whole bunch and I lost friends through that process and I was sexually assaulted. And there are things that have also shaped my experience with grief and loss in different ways as well. And I share all of that because it wasn't until the loss of my daughter that the grief came exploding out, right? Like I didn't know how to deal with grief until then. And because of being in school and being in college and feeling like my life had these separate parts, I could compartmentalize Mm. my pain and just shove it down. But when I lost my daughter, that was my world. And so there was no hiding that pain. There was no just staying busy. There was no just like pushing through that one literally just shattered my heart into a million pieces and forced me to reckon with everything in the past as well. And so that is what brings me to this conversation. That's such a gorgeous answer. And first of all, I'm so sorry about your daughter's death. And I know you're going to tell us more about that. And I think what you just said, like a, a grief expert because we're all, all grievers of untenable loss or grief experts, you're, you are reminding us that the system has its ways and Mm -hmm. it will defend us against hard things the best way it knows how, Mm -hmm. but that we can hit a point where it's never seen or done like a hundred year storm. Mm -hmm. We have never defended ourselves against anything like this before. And it's funny because I was just working on this chapter in my clinical book. Our brain is basically a predictive tool that just catalogs information. So people are really stunned to discover. I had this experience when my a boss died. I didn't even like him that much. He died um, of cancer suddenly. Mm. And I went to his funeral, like beside myself, because I was thinking of my own grandfather. And it was so Mm. confusing to me. Yeah. Why that this man that I didn't even like was reminding me of my grandfather who I'd loved. And then later when I was in school, it was like, oh, well, it's sort of like the matching game. Your brain just sort of puts in a file folder, this hurt in this way because of this thing. But you have just reminded us that there are actual experiences in our lives where no past experience really helps. And in fact, it just makes everything stickier. That's right. Well, and I think too, to your point, we can't possibly as humans get all of our grief out in one instance. Right. Right. So when I hear your experience, what comes to mind for me is I'm hearing you say that you had this loving 
beautiful relationship with your grandfather and you probably grieved and mourned when he died, but it wasn't enough. And so then when you had this patriarchal loss as a boss, it brought back your grandfather. And then it was more of an outlet, right? Like it was an outlet. It had really no correlation other than it was an opportunity to get your own personal grief out. It's a great way to think about it. And, and, and so important for our listeners to hear that, because I think what happens, what we do with our grief, so many, so many instances, as we say, what is wrong with me that I'm feeling this way instead of, Oh, look at that. That's what grief does. It brings up sort of the old things. Can you tell our listeners, is it okay okay to ask about your daughter and about your experience with loss and just maybe Mm -hmm. fill us in on those details? Yeah. You can ask anything you want. (laughs) So yeah, my daughter, my husband and I had been married for a year and Mm -hmm. we literally toasted to no babies because (laughs) we were like, we made it a year. Uh, His parents parents got pregnant with him on, on, um, their honeymoon ish timeframe. So we were like, we made it a year. (laughs) Um, and then a few months later, I was like, just kidding. (laughs) So we got surprised with the pregnancy and we were very shocked and scared, but then we became really excited and we were like, okay, well, at least we'll be young parents. We can still go skiing and scuba diving and all the fun things. Yeah. Yeah. So we had our daughter, we went home from the hospital, healthy, clean bill of health. Uh, And at one month old, I started noticing there was something not quite right. So mm-hmm. her right arm would come up like a chicken wing and mm-hmm. it just kind of like stayed in that position. And when I would gently pull it back down, it would just slowly come back up on its own, uh, as if she weren't controlling it. Mm. And I had worked with severely handicapped kids. I had volunteered when I was in high school to work with elementary school, severely handicapped kids. And so I recognized that that was, uh, similar to a contracture that Mm -hmm. you would see with like cerebral palsy. Yeah. But when I was engaged with my daughter on the changing table and like other areas, she was really alert. Like I could tell even at a month old, she was tracking me. She was so there and brilliant. Yeah. And so I was like, wow, like, (laughs) like she's like extra smart, but there's this chicken wing arm that's like throwing me off. So I bring it up with our pediatrician He's like, yeah, it could be this other injury. I'll send you to a specialist. And the specialist, by the time we got to the specialist, her other arm had rotated inward and just hung limp as if it were disconnected at the shoulder. How much time was that? Just a couple of weeks. Wow. Gosh. And so I was like, well, I don't know if you love, do you allow cussing on your podcast? Oh, we love the cussing. All the words. (laughs) I was like, shit. (laughs) I was like, damn, like, this is not good. Right. Like she, this isn't good because now something else is affected and she's not crying. When I saw that her other arm was hanging limp, I just thought shit. Right. Because there's this uh, now a new symptom and more of her body is being affected. So what could that possibly be? And I learned when we went to the specialist that the brachial plexus specialist that we thought was actually going to be the problem with her other arm said that there's never a case where both arms have been affected. Wow. So he was like, there's something else going on. And he starts asking me questions. I'm thinking he's just trying to get to know me better. Meanwhile, like in hindsight, I'm like, oh, he was asking all these questions to try and get into my genetic history. So he's like, do you have siblings? Does your husband have siblings? Like all these questions. And and I leave and, and with no real uh, answers other than he was like, I'm going to refer you to a neurologist. And I'm like, a neurologist, like, what is her brain? She's smart. She's tracking me. Like, what does this have anything to do with it? And he was like, well, I'm going to make some calls because she's so young. And I feel like as a new parent, you'd want to know as soon as possible. So I was like, oh, okay, like, I don't know this guy. Like, people don't just make calls. Right. Like, so that was the first red flag where I was like, something might be really wrong. And then when we were leaving, it was actually a snow day in Atlanta. And for those of you who are not in the Southeast, but 
three times. Yeah. In the Southeast, like it shuts everything down. And so when we were, and they gave me an option to reschedule, my whole family's from the Midwest. So I'm like, I'm totally fine driving in yeah. snow. It's all good. Oh yeah. But when I was leaving, because it was a snow day, the, the lights in the building were off, like the power reserve was on or something. So, and I say this because when I looked, turned around to look down the hallway, the doctor had come out into the hallway, but the whole hallway was dark, except for like the random emergency lights throughout the hallway. And he just happened to like step into one of those can lights that was on. And it was just like a creepy scene from a movie where he's like, my whole body right now. Oh, he was like standing right under the light. The hallway was super dark. And I just felt the pity like oozing from him. Yeah. And I was like, I just wanted to scream. Like, what are you not telling me? Yes. Like, and you're not telling me that is the worst. Oh, it's awful. So, so I, I leave and my husband was like, Hey, on your way home, can you pick up something at home Depot? And I'm like, sure. So I'm at home Depot and I get a call from our pediatrician and he's basically like, it's not good. And it can be one of five things. And he rattles off a whole bunch of letters. They're all letter combinations that I've never heard of. Of course. And you're in Hope Depot without a pen. And it's back in the day where we just had flip phones, right? So I did not have a smartphone. And he was like, if you make the really bad decision to go home and Google these, here's my cell phone number. Oh, Jesus. So you can, you can call me at any time. And I'm like, no pediatrician in their right mind gives that to a first time mom. <laughs> right. So I'm like, how, what are we talking about? Right. Like how bad is it? Cause I'm in my head, I'm still thinking lifetime of physical therapy, maybe some surgeries, maybe special needs. Cause right. that was my changing her and her eyes are tracking you. And yeah. she, so I- sharp. So with it. So he didn't want to tell me and I pushed him and I pushed him and I pushed him and I was like, dude, you have to tell me like the unknown is, is torture. Way and he said, premature expiration. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm sorry. What? Like death? Like, do you mean death? Are you saying that she's going to die? And he was like, yeah. And so I just, I mean, the wind just left the sails of my lungs and I was like okay I'll I'll talk to you later and I call my husband I start crying pretty much at this point everyone in an orange apron is like running away from me (laughs) yeah like I'm like I'm in I'm trying to get your shelf brackets that you asked me to get and I'm the doctor just called and like something's really wrong I don't know how bad but I think she's gonna die right like I'm panicking at this point my husband lovingly was like, okay, like put the bracket down, just come home and we can like Google them together and we'll figure it out. And she had every symptom of SMA, which stands for spinal muscular atrophy where muscles degenerate. It's really similar to ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, but it's in babies and there's no cure. So at that point, my husband and I had to figure out what do we do? Right. And there's nothing to do, it seems. And so we had to just a terrible answer for a parent. Nothing to do. Not there's nothing, nothing to do. And the doctors were basically like, you just need to go home and make her comfortable, right? Like enjoy the time that you have. And so the neurologist who we met with two weeks later confirmed the diagnosis. And also said, we kind of called him our angel of death because he was the one who was like, you really need to think about what interventions you're willing to make before it's time to make them. Because in the moment, you are not going to have the emotional or mental clarity to make the decision that you want. What a wise person. Yeah. And so he was like, With this condition, there are lots of interventions that you can take, but every intervention is getting closer and closer to life support and technical machine living, right? 
So he's like, you have to decide what you're okay with. And that was really helpful Mm -hmm. uh, because we did talk about it. And when you're faced with death, it kind of forces you to reckon with all of the things you have known and believed like spiritually, religiously, like, okay, like we, our daughter is going to die. And if we don't believe there's anything else after this world, then by God, we are going to force every second we can with her. But if we do believe that there's something else and that she will find rest and healing and restoration, then we might be willing to let her go a little sooner, right? Because we might have the hope of seeing her again. And so it forced us to really get real and to decide what we believe, to decide what our values were, to decide what we wanted for her and for us. We were in that situation. Um, you, guys are, you guys are less than two years married. And we are 25 years old. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. It was, these, are, these are hard. These are hard. People have a hard time talking about a DNR with their elderly parent. Yeah. And you guys are babies talking about this with your baby. Ashley, before yeah. I forget, cause I did, I always ask this and I just didn't ask, what was your daughter's name? Skylar. Skylar. Thank you. Yeah. 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 And so we had to decide what we were going to do. And, and we truly wanted to make the most of our time together. We didn't want to waste a second. Cause we were like, we were told she might not see her first birthday and, and she was two months old at the time. So yeah, so we, we really did. We made the most of it. We spent days watching movies because I, I tried to put in baby Einstein for her and I'm not even kidding you at three months old. She just looked at me like, really mom, this is for kids. Alligator sock puppet. I think not. She was like, this is ridiculous. And we literally started watching cars and finding Nemo, like full feature films. And she was with it the entire time. Like at six months old, she was like preemptively laughing when Dory would speak whale. Like, like the, like there was one day in particular, I'll never forget it. Cause she was on the sofa laying down watching the movie. She couldn't sit up. She had lost her mobility at that point. And I hear her just, she barely had enough breath in her lungs to like make sound so she could never speak, but she had this little laugh that was like the cutest little giggle. And it was just like, (laughs) like, it was just like this super soft little vibration of sound. And I heard it and I look over and I look up at the TV and it's when Dory and Nemo are like, or not Nemo, the dad, when Dory and the dad are facing the dark blue ocean and the whale hasn't come up yet, but she knew that Dory was about to speak well and it was one of her favorite parts. So we had moments of joy like that. We had moments of sorrow where she would turn blue and I was resuscitator and moments of so many moments. We Knowing that Finding Nemo was her favorite movie, we took her to the Georgia Aquarium, which was a super fun experience. Uh, we had moments in the hospital with diff- getting new machines and getting insurance approval and stuff like that. And then we really started preparing for the end at 10 months old. All of the doctors in Atlanta were saying, this is it. This is the, the last, um, there's nothing else we can do. So I call the researcher, we're big believers in organ donations. And the doctors were saying all of her organs were crap. And so we couldn't donate them and, and help anyone. And so I called a researcher, Dr. Swoboda, who had dedicated her career to SMA research. And I was like, hey, if there's an opportunity to use her body to help your research, like we can't donate her organs, but maybe you could take some muscle samples or tissue or anything you need that might help come up with a cure. And uh, she was like, I'm so grateful, obviously, that you're calling me and that's incredibly beyond generous, but let's talk through where you are. Like, what are your settings on your BiPAP machine, your feeding tube settings, like all of this. And she was like, Ashley, there's more you can do. This isn't the end. Wow. And so with her help and with her guidance, we got rid of our pulmonologist at the time because essentially what was happening was our daughter was just very undersupported with her breathing equipment. Yeah. And she was like, when you hit this limit, that's the end. Like that is the upper limit of tolerability. 
Wow. And so with that one call of donating her body to research, we doubled her life. And wow. so we didn't actually say goodbye until she was 21 months old. God, that I mean, there's, there's that particular part of your story feels holy and sacred in it, that you were reaching out in this completely untenable place because you and your husband had had the hard conversations about what do we value and how do we want this to go mm-hmm. forward. And I think the wisdom of that doctor to tell you to do that when you are not what the phrase I use completely jacked up, we don't have access to our prefrontal cortex when we're That's in right. highly emotional state. So there are some of us that make great decisions in those moments, but there are others of us that just vomit. So, and, and then it's not, we don't control it. It just is what right. it is, but that you were in one of those moments where you were living in your, I guess I would say like integrity. And then that person was able to gift you back. the literal most precious thing that they are you're offering your most precious thing and they offer the most precious thing yes that's such a beautiful way to say that and for anyone who's a parent that from 10 months to 21 months is so much growth and personality it's all the good stuff stuff. beautiful wow what was it like for the people who are around you and supporting you during this time did you have oh. family? And I, it's so I, I feel like all, all the ways that we lose our beloveds are so hard. I, there is not a hierarchy, but I do think that people understand that losing a child is a particular kind of hell yeah. that um, a lot of people can't even discuss or face or look at because mm-hmm. we just, we, we don't think we would survive it. Right. And they say all the stupid platitudes of like, Oh, I wouldn't be able to. And it's like, guess what? Nobody can, but somehow we do because that's what humanity is not because I'm a saint or a, but I'm always interested in the, in the way in which we are either supported and it, and, and people are handing us cups, cups of tea and putting out fires, or maybe we have to become a little circular unit on a life raft and let those people bring their boats in once or twice a year. What was it like for you and your husband? It was really challenging. Like I said, we were 25. So we were the first of all our friends to have a baby, which means we were the first of all our friends to lose one. And so a lot of our other young friends just disappeared because they were like, I don't know what to do. And I'm 20. Yeah. And like, because they didn't have their own kids, they couldn't even understand parenthood yet, let alone like the depth of loss of losing a child. And so the other piece of that is we're just not taught. It's not their fault. Like I didn't blame any of them because we're not taught how to grieve. We're not taught how to support others. And so how could they know they there's no, we're just not, our society isn't good about teaching emotions and processing and integration and all the things that are required for healthy communication and relationships. And yeah, so the good news was we did, we were part of a church community that was pretty remarkable. We had people sign up to bring us meals twice a week for over a year. That was, that was truly so impactful. We had a friend of ours gift us a professional portrait session. Um, And we had other friends who would come and just cook out with us once a month. They actually had a baby a month after we did, and they were super sweet and just would bring their baby over and hang out with us. Our parents were very active and supporting. Luckily, they were all somewhat close by. So it was, if we needed anything, we could call on them. But I think too, emotionally, their grandparents losing their baby and watching their kids go through this, right? So they're they all have their own stuff to deal with. And that came out in different ways throughout the entire journey of creating healthy boundaries of I'm not, I can't parent you, right? Like I'm not here to parent you. You're my parent and I'm going through the worst time of my life. Like I need support. Right. And so there were moments of that, but there, but overall we had a a really beautiful community of people who were, who were gathered to support us. And we were very fortunate in that because I know not everyone has that. And so, yeah, so people did disappear. A lot of people showed up, the people who really showed up to love us 
uh, made the difference. There were some people who showed up because of fear or obligation and it was felt. And so that's something that I encourage people always show up in love. Don't let those other feelings take the driver's seat because as long as you show up in love, you can say or do anything and the love will still be felt mm. versus showing up in fear and letting fear guide and anxiety and what if, and what if I say the wrong thing? What if I do the wrong thing? What if I offend them? What if they make them cry? It's like, don't think about all that. Just show up and love the person. That's really beautiful. I wrote that down. That's just a, I think that's one of the challenges that people have, right? Is that everything is so awkward. Nobody knows how to do it. What they really want is not possible, which is to like make you feel better and make it all to go away. And the way I describe it is it's all knees and elbows. Mm -hmm. But if, if we use the threshold of, am I showing up? One of the, one of the questions I ask people who want to support grievers, right? Cause some of those folks do such a terrible job mm-hmm. is what is your motivation? Right. Be aware of what your motivation is. If your motivation is to make them feel better or to teach them something or suggest something or give them something and have that something be impactful, you're almost better off not going. Absolutely. You're almost better off just telling. I mean, I had a neighbor after my mom died. I mean, God love them. They know I tell this story all the time, but they're just a neighbor. And she came over and she like sort of stopped on the street. She's like, if you ever want to get a drink. And I was really out of my head when my, after my mom died. And I was like, we've never had a drink before. Why in the world would you be suggesting that we would have a drink now? Because my mom died. Like that's the weirdest thing anyone ever suggested to me. And she said, oh, I just, it's because I feel really awkward. And I was like, then just tell me you feel awkward. Like, I know it's really hard. That feels more like that. I, I don't know what to say to you, Megan, is yeah. more real and and true and comforting. And I was like, I know it's so hard for everyone. And I can take in that love, right? Like I could just take in that what to do. Well, and I think the other thing with that is, to your point, it's like, if you're motivated in trying to fix someone or to like, connect with someone and share your own pain, right? Like if you think that you're being empathetic by sharing your own pain, you're not like you're adding pain to someone's life. That's already in pain. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like to just show up and listen and to be present is such a gift instead of like, we had people who were trying to fix it for us. Mm -hmm. So we would get people to that said, Oh, well, at least dot, dot, dot. And it's like, yeah, I know you want to help me look at the bright side, but also like, like, here's my middle finger. Right. Because that's also my two-year-old is dying. There is no bright side. Yeah. Well, people would say like, well, at least you still have your husband so you can have more kids. How did that get? So, I mean, I hear this all the time. First of all, at least should be just stripped out. And I do, I want to say this to you because I feel like as somebody who's in this world, like we are constantly failing people. We yes. are constantly yes. failing because this gets said all the time. Mm-hmm. And I, and here's the analogy I use is like, everybody knows whether it's right or wrong, that you're supposed to hold your breath when you get the hiccups, like mm-hmm. hold your breath. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it doesn't work, but that's what we think we're supposed to do. Right. There should be the same ac- axioms that are well known around grief. Never, ever say the word at least ever. Don't say it. Don't ever. do it. Ever. And if you do, you are the asshole. Like it has to be that way. Yes. Yes. Because what happens, I think I write about this a bunch is that people want to be seen as being well-intended and they want that intention to land with goodness. Mm -hmm. You don't get to control that. So Mm -hmm. when people said to me after my mom died, well, she's in heaven with your father, like, I get that that feels good for you to say, which is literally what I would say to people. Like, I know you are saying that because that makes you feel better, but I don't believe in heaven. So that actually makes me feel even worse that Um, you get comfort and I don't. What might work for me is if you tell me a funny story about my mom, because I was really funny and I wasn't there, you probably have some. But also what I wanted to say to people is don't say that shit to me. Don't, don't assume, don't say that. And again, what I have heard from people who are trying to be supportive is like, yeah, but when you're yelling at me and scolding me for the things that I'm not doing right, it does not make me feel more able. Right. And I get that. And also too bad. Keep trying. Right. Too bad. And keep trying. Like I'm giving you guidance. I'm sorry. It hurt your feelings. You wanted it. You wanted the thing that you did to be good. And it, 
But I also do a lot of coaching to people, which is like, what comes naturally to you? Don't sign up on a, on a food chain. If you don't cook, like, why, why would you do that? Don't give them bad lasagna. Like that's not good. But the notion that somebody thought to give you guys a family portrait, like that almost just made me cry. That is yeah. a truly attuned yep. gift. And I imagine the person who was doing that was a little nervous that maybe that wouldn't feel great to you. Right. Yeah. He actually said, so it's a, a couple of ours. They got married right after we graduated. We all went to Clemson together for college and we, yeah, he was like, we wanted to be the friends that like did something. We didn't want to just say like, oh, we're so sorry. And then not show up. And he had a friend who was a professional photographer. Her name was Tessa. And he asked her if, if he could hire her to do the session. And what was really cool was cool in the way that things happen, not cool that her family is affected by the same disease, but her niece had SMA type two at the time. And her sister ended up having another baby with uh, SMA type two, because there's a high percentage that your other kids would also have it like 25% chance or more, so which cool. is why that we tied our tube. So when people would say, at least you can have more kids, it's like, actually no, but nice try. So anyway, Tessa, because her family was affected by it, she was like, oh my gosh, like I've been looking for ways to give back. And this is such a great way to give back. So she donated a session to us and came back and photographed uh, our family again, right before Skylar passed away. And those photos were the most helpful tool that I had in my grief because I got the pamphlet on the five stages of grief. Right. Yeah. And I started reading about it and I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Like I'm not yeah. feeling any of this. Like, and what was crazy was later when I launched an organization to help people heal in grief, when I really started researching the five stages, I learned that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came up with those after studying people facing their own death. Yeah. It's not so it was like, oh, that makes so much more sense because you have like, it's linear. You have stages because there's an end point. You, you die, right? Correct. But for the people who are, who are left behind, there is no timeline. There are no stages. There is just this mess of emotions. So, so that was, that was obviously in the moment it didn't help, but finding that out afterwards was helpful in that it was like, oh, cool. I'm not doing anything wrong that I didn't feel anger or bargaining or whatever, but I, I still was trying to figure out like, well, how do we heal in grief? Like, how do, how do we do this? Like the five stages aren't working. Like I'm not finding anything else. People are giving me books, but they're just books of other people's stories. I know. So like, what we love to give a book, we love them. And, and so, yeah, so it was really just interesting because the photos, I didn't realize it, but over that first year, they really gave me space to grieve and feel. And what I learned was feeling was healing. And in order to heal, I had to grieve. And in order to grieve, I had to feel. And in order to feel, I had to be present with my emotions and with, with whatever was coming up in that moment. And so, yeah, they just were a huge gift. They allowed me to hold my daughter when she was no longer there to hold. And they still, to this day, provide a way for me to introduce her to other people. Like you get to see Skylar and, and they allow me connection. I'll look at the photos and just tell her how much I miss her. And, and I really do believe that there is something else after this world. I don't know what it is, but yeah. I do believe that there is something and and that our loved ones can still love us from the other side mm -hmm. through signs, through communication, just in our heart. I've felt it. And it is, it is the most comforting thing. And the photos are a great uh, tool to enable that connection and continued relationship, even after it's transformed. Uh, thank you so much for saying that a lot of the work that I do with folks is help them create a grief practice. Mm -hmm. And it is not me telling them what to do because I will never, ever, ever come up with the unbelievable ways that people come that instinctively land on how they want to 
be present with the energy and help sort of move the energy through. And it sounds like you didn't know when you were getting these photos done that that is what was going to be part of your grief practice. Yep. But we are, it's it's what you said at the beginning, just because you had loss in the past did not mm-hmm. set you up to understand how to do this loss. And it is actual novelty. Like it is an actual novel experience to grieve the death of your child. And it doesn't matter that other people may have grieved the death of their children. That can be comforting, right? It's like people telling you about running a marathon and what did they do? Yeah. What did they train and how did, what like drink did they like? But they survived. Was, yeah, they survived. You're still going to have to run <laughs> yeah. your own damn marathon. Like yeah. that is comforting and helpful, but it does not impact your feet on the ground. Right. And I just think, and I have some chills while I'm saying this, I think the gift of understanding that, again, quote unquote, grief experts, which is what I am supposedly one, are really just glorified coaches and people who will sit with you in the terribleness of it and say, at some point, there will be some energy that will shift. Yeah. And when you're in that shift, move towards what seems reasonable. And I've said this on the podcast so many times, but in my office, I have this big whiteboard that I, with permanent marker, I just put down everything anyone ever told me, helped them in grief, everything. So singing, drinking is on there. Having sex is on there. Crying is on there. Dancing is on there. Playing the French tuba is on. I mean, all of it is on there because people said, Megan, thank God I had this because this is where my energy wanted to go. And there's a whole bunch of people for whom that is sort of intuitive. Like it's like it gets co-created. The universe puts the photos in your hand and you begin to use it. And it's just sort of like, you intuitively move forward. And there's a whole bunch of people that they, for lots of reasons, are kind of like, I don't know what to do. And so for those folks, what we say is like, just try it. Right. Not sure if you like it, just try what seems possible. Well, I did used to like to garden. Great. Okay. Well then you don't even have to do anything. Just imagine what it would be like to garden with grief in mind. Yeah. Would that look, you may not even have to do it, or you may go to the garden center and buy a whole bunch of herbs this weekend. Let's just see what happens. Yeah. I love that. Right. And so the notion is the thing that everyone says to us, particularly parents who've lost a child, which is like, I could never do it, is all that means is you can't imagine how you would do it. And no one ever can Mm -hmm. begin to create the possibility just by doing shit. Right. And then all of a sudden you are somebody who has some wisdom about how people survive completely unsurvivable moments and times in our lives. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about your program. Yeah. I want to yeah, know. So, yeah. Tell us about what has grown from this experience. So through acknowledging that photos were the most helpful tool, I was thinking about it and I was like, well, I'm a photographer. I can give this gift to other people. Mm. And I started asking anyone that I heard of facing a terminal diagnosis if they wanted a free portrait session. So I started doing a lot. First, it was just like one or two here and there. Uh, As I started doing more, my husband was like, okay, I love you and you're giving heart, but we are going to go broke. Like you have got to stop. Um, He's like, you're giving away, like, I love it. Right. Like you're so your professional expertise is for free because grief is super sad, but (laughs) we need some But he's like, you're giving away prints and artwork and albums, and those are really costly. Plus you're not charging, plus you're doing more and more of them. So it's eating into your revenue from your actual business. So I was like, I hear you, but also like we were there, like we know how intense medical bills can be. We know the funeral expenses, like we know just like how much photography is a luxury before you need it. And then it becomes a necessity, right? So I can't charge these families anything, but I'll figure it out. Right. Like I'll figure it out. I hear your problem. I'm going right. to different than you think. Right. Yeah. And so that's really what led me to start it as a nonprofit, because I thought if I'm willing to give it all away, then I believe there are other people out there who care and who would want to help me give it all away to people who are dying and their loved ones. So started a nonprofit, super grassroots, just invited 30 of my friends and family who had done a really great job of supporting us and said, Hey, it's Skylar's sixth birthday. 
normally this is a horrible day for me. And I just lay in bed and eat brownies and wish I were dead, but I have this vision of helping other people. And I want to raise $6,000 for her sixth birthday. That'll give us our promo video and our website. And we did. And so that was 2015, 2016, we launched the website and had two families within the first two months, one in New York and one in Georgia. We were based in Atlanta. So I was like, I don't know how the person in New York found us, but that's cool. And, and literally people just started finding us all over. We had someone in Connecticut. We had someone out in Texas. We had just all over. And so I started raising money to go fly and photograph these families. And then my vision has always been to get to a national and, and then global level where we have photographers across the country, across the globe, in all the cities so that they can volunteer and serve people locally, right? But until we get there... I've been traveling to do as many as I can. Uh, And this year is the first year that we've really started accepting photographers across the United States. Um, And it's been really, really cool. So we're actively recruiting photographers. We're actively recruiting donors and heartbeat members. That's who we call our monthly givers. And and we're getting ready to rebrand at the end of this year with that greater global vision in mind. And so... Come December 31st and January 1st, we will be known as the Memento Foundation moving forward. And right now, I don't think we said it, it's Love Not Lost. Correct. Yes. So Love Not Lost is what I started eight years ago. So I want to say this for the listeners, because this comes up a lot. Not everybody writes a memoir, starts a nonprofit, was able to donate and give back in their loss, right? And I think all of us like that story the best. (laughs) The one where we can transform the pain into something that adds to others. What I love about what you are describing is you don't have to start the nonprofit. You can just donate or connect to the nonprofit, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the real gift is that just like the photographer had a personal connection and was able to show up for you. I think, again, I'm going to say in this very sacred way, that is, I imagine the draw that people who are like, what I would like to do is donate some of my time, or I would like to these particular families that they, that to me feels like church. That to me feels like the best Mm -hmm. of humanity. And for those of us that, that we want that story, but we don't all start this Susan G. Komen Foundation. Like that's not that they get to connect to the goodness that you are doing. And so I just want to say that out loud to people that for a very long time, the charity charitable organization that I love the most, I did some work for them, but I also just wrote checks for them because mm-hmm. the kind of work that they did was so boots on the ground. I, it would be pretty, it was in fact, pretty dysregulating to me sometimes to talk to the families who were in need. And I would do exactly what you were talking about, which is my husband would be like, you can't give away our house. You can't give away our car. You can't. And I would lose sleep in those things. And, and, and that's not always, we have to be careful about that. So I wanted to ask that, what has the process of being the photographer been like for you? Is it hard and dysregulating? Is it? Yeah. I mean, it it absolutely is, but also... (laughs) what people, I feel like people imagine the worst, yeah. right? But there are sessions that are like incredibly beautiful and loving and awesome that you wouldn't even know that someone was sick, right? Let alone dying. So I want people to hear that like, it's not all doom and gloom, right? Like there are times where you leave feeling awesome and you're like, God, that family loves each other so much. Right. And there's a sadness to it because they're going to lose someone, but it's this beauty in that, like, as a photographer, like we get to capture that and we have a superpower, right? Like we get to freeze time. Like how powerful is that? And so that's something that we tell our photographers all the time is like, So we created a trauma-informed training to bring our photographers through before they ever step foot in front of a family. The driving question of love not lost is how can we love people better? Because we truly believe that love is what brings healing. And when we asked how can we love our photographers better, as well as how can we love our families better, it's making sure that the photographers are equipped to handle their own trauma and their own pain before setting foot in front of anybody. And so 
we develop this trauma-informed training and we do talk about that a lot of some of these sessions will be really triggering based on your own personal history, right? Your own personal experiences. So like what triggers me won't be what triggers you, but in the triggering, instead of looking at it as like this horrible thing that we have to be sad or upset about like oh i can't believe i got triggered and like that was horrible and now i feel terrible and blah 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 what we tell people is when you get triggered it is your body inviting you into a deeper healing totally right and so it's really just about like recognizing and being self-aware to say what triggered me, like what exactly was it, right? Like, was it hearing parents crying? Was it thinking about my own daughter dying and seeing this little girl laying in the bed, right? Like what, what was the trigger? Because that's actually where I have more work to do, where my body is ready to heal. God, Ashley, you just, I mean, you said it so beautifully and expertly and in a way that makes such concrete sense. And it, that word trigger is really tricky. Mm -hmm. And what I see a lot, like on the, on the psychological interwebs is like how to avoid triggers, why triggers are bad. And I think what you're reminding us is trigger triggers are more like an unexpected rainstorm. Yeah. And if you are do practicing your grief regularly, just because you are currently getting wet does not mean you need to feel like you are about to die in this storm. So there are, right? Every one of us, I I had this experience yesterday and I put it up on my Instagram today. I was like, what is this piece of mail I'm getting? Like, oh, the the name is sort of familiar. What is this? And then I, as I'm opening it, I'm like, oh my God, this is my parents' headstone. This is the engravers. And so out comes the bill, which I expect, but what I didn't expect was the picture of their headstone with the numbers finished, which I've never seen before. Yeah. And I had two, two feelings about it. One was just unbelievable gratitude for the people who help us in these hard spaces yeah. and the way in which they are brilliantly compassionate and kind and thoughtful and attentive in that way. And the other was, fuck, this is going to screw me up for the next couple <laughs> of hours. Yeah. No, and I took it and I took the picture and I put it in a little frame. And my husband later was like, what is that? And I explained it to him. And he was like, do you really want it next to the bed? And I was like, yes, because I'm okay. Like my body is okay. I'm not at an 11. I'm at, I'm at a six. And so it's a little bit like pushing on a muscle that's sore. Like I actually think the pushing on it is good for it. You yeah. know, hearing mm-hmm. it. But when I was, when my, my middle son, who's a riot, when he was younger, we live in DC and DC does get these unbelievable thunder and lightning storms, which Mm -hmm. I'm from New England. We don't have, if it rains in New England, it's going to rain all day. You don't get like a 15 minute flash flood. Like we get here and many times we would be out on our bikes. We would be on a walk. We would be somewhere. And like the sky, it's stranger things. The sky is darkening. And we'd be like, well, we can try to run home or we can try to, and my son would be like, eh, let's just get wet. Like, let's just get wet. And I think about that a lot. I think about the, like, are you really going to outrun the storm? Like you might outrun this storm, but there's going to be a storm in the grocery store. That's right. There's going to be a storm in a conversation. There's going to be a storm in a photo. And so the, the coaching, the gift that you are talking to your photographers that you're talking them through is. It's neither a problem, nor is it avoidable. It can be a gift, right? It mm-hmm. can point you in a direction right. of where you're you're pulling on a muscle that needs to be stretched, yep. right? That that is, so just the way, I'm going to remember the way you just taught us about that forever, because I just think that is so unbelievably beautiful. Who sustains you all now? Is it small donations? Do you have big foundations? Like who are who are the people that are keeping you afloat? That is such a great question because it is so important because we still are a small organization and in the growing period, it is uh, incredibly challenging and we wouldn't be here uh, without a few big key players. Sure. 
Northside Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia has been an incredible, incredible supporter. Kalon Creative, also a huge financial contributor over the long haul. We have had a family foundation. So a little boy that we had served, his parents started a foundation for kids with his condition, the DIPG, DMG, and their family foundation has contributed to some of our events and efforts to support other families. And uh, they're the Yvonne Tuari Foundation. And then I would say 70, 60 to 70% of our giving community is just individuals Mm. and people who give $5 a month um, to $200 a month to $5,000 a year. And those people make the difference. We survived 2020. Uh, we almost didn't, but we did. And it was truly because of heartbeat givers who were giving every month. And that's why we call them the heartbeat because without them, we would not exist. Our heart, like that is critical. So our monthly givers are the heartbeat. We have one-time givers, certainly people who support us through events and then corporate sponsorships. That is that. I think that's so important for people to know, because again, the charity work that I've done, it looks like, I don't know, a venture capitalist is helping, but really it's like moms writing small checks at a table. Um, But moms writing small checks at a table can sustain entire organizations and can give true healing work. So we'll link in the podcast notes so that people can do this, the the best way to get in touch with you and to donate and to become a member. And you guys are a nonprofit, which means that there's a a tax element in there so that people can feel totally good about themselves. We'd love that. And then we'll look for your rebranding in mm-hmm. January, do you, do you have events coming up? If people are interested, could you, you want to tell them what's, what's happening in the world? Yeah. So we are working on one that will be in Atlanta on October 19th, and it's going to be a really cool experience. We love at love, not lost memento foundation. We love trying new things. We love exploring and, and shaking things up. Right. Cause we don't want like if you support multiple causes, like it's boring to go to like five galas a year that are all yes, the same, right? I don't like any galas. I'm gonna yeah. So, so we actually created an ungala that was really, really fun. Uh, that was this past spring, summer, like I guess it was more June, July, but we're going to do that again next year. We'll have the ungala. The immersive experience is going to be like an art gallery immersive experience on October 19th. We do a holiday auction. That's an online auction that anyone around the country can participate in. And that's usually the first week of December. Obviously there's giving Tuesday. And then we have a virtual wine tasting that we do. And that will be in February. Uh, And it's really, really fun. Ashley, thank you so much for sharing your story about Skylar with us today and your amazing organization that is, I think, returning the gift of being able to find a way forward even if it plays a small part that photographs can in people's grief work. And I think probably also your own grief work and inviting other people to do theirs alongside this full circle moment. It's really, really beautiful. I hope listeners go and find your organization and donate to your organization and stay connected. And I hope you will just keep us abreast of what's happening as it's happening. And we'll put that up on our um, platform so that we can keep our community apprised. But this has been an incredibly beautiful conversation. Such an honor to sit with you. Thank you so much.